Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold your delight and truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you, will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The title of the chapter that we're reading this morning is, uh, is this. It says, To the choir master... A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So there's a, an entire backstory, and it is the story of David and Bathsheba. We're going to recap that for a minute because I think it's important for us to have that as our framework as we dive into Psalm 51. So as you recall, David is the, the king of Israel, uh, and he's doing a pretty good job ru ruling the land. One day he's walking on his rooftop deck, and he looks down, and he sees Bathsheba naked bathing. Uh, and he calls her over to his castle, and they begin to have an affair. After a while, Bathsheba gets pregnant. Now, Bathsheba isn't just any woman. She is Uriah's wife. And Uriah isn't just any man. Uriah is one of David's closest friends. He's one of his best friends. You see, Uriah spent an entire season in the desert with David, running from the former king. Uriah was one of the few men that stood by David's side while he was being hunted down. He, he ran through the desert with David. He hid in the caves with David. He fought wars to keep David alive. And now, while David is home sleeping with his wife, Uriah is off fighting another one of David's wars. So Bathsheba's pregnant, and David needs to do something to cover up his sin. He calls Uriah home, and he tries to get him to sleep with his wife so that he would think that the baby is his. But Uriah, being the outstanding man that he is, says, I will not sleep with my wife so long as my men are off to war. He won't do it. David even tries getting him drunk to get him to sleep with his wife, and he will not do it. So David devises a plan to have this good friend, this honorable warrior, murdered. 
he sends them back out into war on the front lines and he forces his troops to pull back so that David would be killed by the opposing army. So David then marries Bathsheba and they have the baby and he thinks he gets away with everything, but not so much. Nathan the prophet comes to David and he tricks him with a parable. He says, David, there's a man in your land. He's a rich man. He has tons of sheep and tons of goats. And his neighbor is a very poor man and he only has one goat. And that goat isn't a goat that you slaughter. It's actually his kid's pet. They feed the goat. They hang out with the goat. It sleeps in the room with them. So one day a traveler comes and the traveler is hungry and the rich man says, I'm not going to give up any of my stock. Instead, I want the poor man to give away his one baby sheep, his one baby goat that his kids love. So he forces the poor man to slaughter their pet to feed the traveler. David hears the story and he's furious. He gets up. He's like, bring that man to me. That man is unjust and he must pay for this. And then Nathan drops the bomb on him. He says, David, you are that man. That man is you. Of course, talking about his sin with Bathsheba. After that, David repents of his sin and writes Psalm 51. This is the poem that David wrote when he finally realized the great sin that he had committed. It is a very emotional, intimate poem that we're going to be studying today. But before we get in, I want to just mention two things about the story of David, Bathsheba, and Nathan and Uriah. The first one is this. Everybody needs a Nathan in their life. Every single one of us needs somebody that knows us well and that is willing to call us out on our junk. Someone who's not afraid to hurt your feelings, but knows how to do it in a loving way. Because ultimately, this kind of a friend, this kind of a Nathan is the kind of person that is less interested in your comfort and is more interested in your character. So my question to you is, who is your Nathan in your life right now? Who knows you? Who is invited into knowing you and, and you are allowing them to call you out on your sins? If you don't have a Nathan in your life, man, I would strongly encourage you to find one. Nathans could help us avoid horrible sin. They can stop us from absolutely destroying our lives. So if you don't have one, I'd strongly encourage you to find a Nathan. They don't literally need to be named Nathan, just to clarify. Some of you are very literal people. Uh, the second thing is this. As we get into the text and we learn about repentance, we might be tempted to think to ourselves, man, David sucks. Like his sin was bad. He committed murder. He slept with his best friend's wife. Like I am nothing like this man. But here's the thing. David was one of the best among us. The Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. After all, he wrote poetry that became a part of scripture. He was God's chosen great king for his land. And he killed Goliath. Like that, none of those things are on any of our resumes. And so while we may not have committed murder, our sins might look a little bit different. But we are the Davids of our story. Maybe you haven't committed murder, but maybe for you, there's just some habitual sin that you cannot kill that has been with you your entire life. Or maybe like David, you have committed an explosive sin in your life and you know exactly what it looks like and what it feels like. 
Maybe you've committed one recently and you just haven't been caught for it. Or maybe for you, your sin is the sin of self-righteousness, where you view yourself as a morally right person. And because of that, you think that you've earned favor with God. You rely on your self-righteousness rather than God's grace. See, the point is, no matter what kind of sin we have in our lives, we are the Davids in our story. And what I hope, my hope for you this morning is that Psalm 51 would be your Nathan that we would come to realize uh, that we are in need of repentance and of grace. It was Luther that said that the Christian life is a life of daily repentance. And so the question is, how do we do that? How do we live daily repentant lives? And we're going to find that out. One more thing before we dive in. It's a long intro, I know. I promise it's only going to be an hour and a half long, though. Repentance is a funny word. If you're, a new, if you're new to the Christian faith or you're, uh, you're here just listening to check it out, I know that this word can be a loaded word. And a part of the problem is that all of us, or maybe even most of us, have this visual of maybe people uh, picketing like a, a, a soldier who was gay and who passed away, right? Uh, and they have like the turn or burn or the big repent signs. And so for us, sometimes we link the word repentance with bigotry. And that is really unfortunate because repentance is supposed to be a beautiful word. It's something that all Christians should embrace and should draw towards. And that is because repentance, I think oftentimes repentance is talked about as like a turning from sin. And that's a part of it, but that's only half the story. Repentance is not just a turning from sin, it's a turning from something ugly towards something beautiful. Repentance is the reminder to us that we are caught up in something that is not worthy of our time, that there is something else more glorious and good for our souls, and that something else, of course, is God. So we're going to break down the psalm this morning in three different categories three different sections, I should say. Verses 1 through 5 is the reality of sin. Verses 6 through 12 is the work of God. And 13 to 19 is the result of repentance. So let's look back at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. True change True repentance comes when we have godly sorrow over our sins. Now, in our culture today, shame and guilt has a bad rap. If you listen to any like pop culture, self-help, motivational speakers, they would tell you, you don't have to have shame over anything. You be you, boo. You do your thing. Like, don't listen to what other people have to say. There is no shame and guilt in being the authentic self that you are. But here's the challenge with that. Sociology and psychology and Psalm 51 both recognize that shame and guilt actually have a very important role to play in our lives. You see, shame can guide our moral conscience. If you feel pain on your body, it's your nervous system telling you to back off, right? If I touch something hot, my nervous system activates. It tells me to pull my hand away. In that same way, shame and guilt can be a moral nervous system for our morality and our ethics. It helps us to survive. It guides our conscience. There are, there's a name for people who actually don't have shame and guilt. They're called sociopaths. 
and sociopaths to bad things. As a matter of fact, the one thing that links all serial killers together is the fact that they are sociopaths. They have no capacity to feel shame and guilt. So on one hand, shame and guilt is good for us. No shame is bad for us. And I want to stop here for a minute because uh, kind of a sidebar here, okay? There's also a kind of shame that is, that is not good, and that is what we call victimhood shame. Victimhood shame is the kind of shame that someone feels when they've been physically, sexually, verbally abused. And victimhood shame is not from God. Victimhood shame is a lie from the devil. And I just bring this up as a side note, because I want to say to you that if you've, if you've experienced that before, if you've experienced that now, I want to tell you that that is not from the Lord. You are a victim in that circumstance. The sin was not committed by you. It was committed against you. And so if you're experiencing that kind of shame, man, we would love to talk to you about that. If you're a guy, I'd love to have a conversation with you. If you're a female and you're experiencing that, Alyssa or Kelly would love to have a conversation with you guys. So victimhood shame is something that is unwarranted and undesired by God. Uh, but there is a good kind of shame. Godly guilt is a sorrow over sin that we've committed against God. So the question is, how do we develop this kind of godly sorrow? That's in the next verse. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Notice David does not say, God, have mercy on me. I don't want to be punished. God, have mercy on me. I don't want to experience pain. God, have mercy on me. I want to have a good life. What he says is, God, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. Man, this is so important. This can radically change your view of God and his grace towards you. When your sorrow comes from your love for God and not a love for yourself, it can change everything. You see, sometimes when we talk about repentance, we talk about a warning from punishment. And it is true. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to mince my words here. God is a just God, and he is just to punish. But if the reason for our repentance is simply to avoid punishment, to avoid pain, or to experience the good life, then we haven't truly found God lovely. We haven't truly began to understand his steadfast love for us. You see, it's not, it's not until we realize that our sin, no matter how big or small, is against a beautiful and awesome, and I mean that word in the original truest sense, awesome, as in awestruck by who he is. It is not until we realize that our sin is against a God who loves us and that is awesome that we are able to truly repent when we realize that we have dishonored a God who has spared nothing who has even given up his only son for you, only then can we truly have sorrow for our sins. It's like this. Imagine a husband who cheats on his wife and uh, he's now sleeping on his buddy's couch and he's lamenting. He's like, man, I miss my big screen TV. I miss my wife's good home cooking and I miss my comfortable bed. And his friend's like, dude, just go apologize and you'll get all those things back. So he goes and he knocks on the door. The wife opens. He's like, listen, I'm so sorry. I miss my TV. I miss my bed and I miss your cooking. Like, does that sound like repentance to you? 
It sounds like that guy's kind of a jerk, right? Likewise, when we go to God and we say, forgive us, God, we don't want to be punished. We just want the good life. We haven't fully realized how amazing he is. We haven't found God lovely, and we haven't began to understand what it means to have a God who has steadfast love for us. You see, steadfast love is never ending. It's immovable, unending, uncomprehendable, unimaginable. It's the love that says no matter what you've done, I won't let you go. No matter how long you've been away, I will redeem you. No matter how often you forget about me, no matter how often you deny me, I will love you. Even when you fail to love me, I will continue to love you. And the proof is in his son. The fact that he gave him up, that he allowed Jesus to experience the fullness of the wrath of God so that we would be forgiven and set free. Not until we have that in our sights are we able to truly repent. Steadfast love is when we say, I have sinned against you who spared nothing for me. That's true love. That is godly sorrow. It's a love for God versus a love for self. Look what else it says. Verse four, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is kind of a weird one because it's like, hold on a second, you alone? Like Uriah is dead. The, the kingdom is affected by a dishonorable king, right? And I mean, if you think about it, if you're Uriah's father and mother and you're reading this, you're like against God alone? Like you took our son from us. How are you saying that you've sinned against God alone? And he doesn't say it by accident because he doubles down on it. He says against you and you alone, which is his way of using poetic language to make sure you get the point. And what David is not saying is that he doesn't think that he's not sinned against other people. He's not trying to downplay his sin against Uriah's family or the kingdom. As a matter of fact, what he's saying is that because his sin is first a sin against God, it actually makes his sin against the other people that much worse. What he's saying is that I have done evil in God's sight, not man's sight, not my family's sight, not his family's sight, not society's sight, but in God's sight and in God's sight alone. David begins to see sin the way God sees sin. I didn't, I didn't prepare this, but it's important. Uh, and it gets kind of weird when we talk about morals and ethics in society. But here's why this is important. Because David is the king, and he can decree whatever he wants. So technically, David could decree that what he did to Uriah and Bathsheba is not actually wrong. And that's not far-fetched because we have Viking kingdoms, Anglo-Saxon Viking kingdoms, in which uh, the, the warrior, the strong man, was praised. So in other words, if you were the kind of person that could sack your, your neighbor's land and take his wife, in an Anglo-Saxon Viking culture, that would have been considered an honorable thing to do. It's not until we find morality and ethics in a Judeo-Christian culture where we say you should not take advantage of the people that are weaker than you. So here's the point that I'm saying. David recognizes that he can, he can technically get away with this thing, but he can't because he knows that God is the one who determines morals and ethics. He's the one that decides right and wrong. After all, God is the creator of all beauty and truth and goodness which makes him the only person with authority to be able to tell us what is not beautiful, what is not true, and what is not good. 
And this is important to us, especially living in our culture today, because in our culture, we are told that ultimately the only way to, to sin is to go against your own heart. Like Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience be your guide. But Jiminy was wrong. Like, I mean, if you think about it, serial killers are allowing their conscience to be their guide, right? You see, the point is we are not capable of creating our own moral compasses. We are actually masters at moral compromise. And here's the thing, nobody sets out to do something bad. None of us think to ourselves, I'm gonna do something evil today. What we do is we spin it to make it sound not so bad. And we've been doing this since the garden. Eve said, well, I know it's wrong, but the snake. Adam said, well, I know it's wrong, but Eve, right? Like Germany said, well, I know it's wrong, but you know, the economy, my generals. See, we are constantly doing this with our sin. We blame it on circumstances. Well, if my kids would just behave, I wouldn't be that way. Well, if my spouse just did this, I wouldn't have done that. Well, I didn't want to do that, but you know, they were doing this. It's, it's kind of funny because we're all like really good at making ourselves look good. Uh, and go with me with this. So you guys remember, it was about a year ago and on Facebook, I think it was Facebook, there was this trending thing where you did this like side-by-side -side comparison of like the first picture you ever posted uh, on social media and the most recent picture. You guys remember that? And at first I saw that, I'm like, yo, dude, like my friends have all gotten a lot better looking. <laughs> but then I started to kind of realize, actually, we've all just gotten really good at taking pictures of ourselves. Like over the last 10, 15 years of social media, we all know a little bit more about lighting and angles. <laughs> You know what I mean? And it's funny because like guys, like our first pictures, we're all like happy and nerdy. And now we, we've got like this, you know? And ladies, like you, same thing, but now you've got like this weird, like, which is kind of funny because this is so unnatural. If I saw you out in the lobby, like talking, I'd be like, are you okay? But in the picture, it looks good, you know? Or if you're pregnant, I love this one. It's super cute. If you're pregnant, it's like a declaration. It's like, look guys, I haven't gained weight. I'm pregnant. And it's like, make sure you recognize, you know? Here's what I'm saying. We all do this. We also do this with our sin. We know how to frame it in the right angle. We know how to put it in the right lighting so it doesn't look that bad. But it never looks good in God's sight. There are several ways we can do this. I've got a list, I'm gonna show it. Maybe, maybe you find yourself on this list or maybe there's a way that you do this that's not up here. But let's just give a few examples. In my sight, I get upset every now and then. In God's sight, that's murder. In my sight, it doesn't hurt to look, but in God's sight, that's adultery. In my sight, it's harmless gossip, but in God's sight, I'm storing up bitterness in my heart. In my sight, I give a little and it's enough, but in God's sight, none of it's ours to begin with. We're just stewards of his grace. See, ultimately, repentance forces you to realize that life is not about you. Timothy Keller said it like this, you are not the center of the universe. You were born into a universe that sole purpose is to sing the praises of God. What's happening here with David in Psalm 51, and he's going, man, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He is confessing that he's not the center of the universe. And through that confession, David is ready to stop making excuses for his sin. 
he starts to see it the way God see it. And look at his next response. Now that he sees sin the way God sees sin, what does he say? Blot out my transgressions, O God. Wash me thoroughly from my inequity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You see, David hates his sin. He doesn't care about the consequence. He doesn't care that he's been caught. He's looking inside of himself and he's seeing something that he doesn't want there. And he's turning to God. He's saying, wash me, cleanse me, get this out of me. Have you guys ever struggled years trying to get rid of sin? Anger or jealousy or pornography or gossip. Maybe it's visiting websites you shouldn't. And that doesn't just mean the pornographic ones. It's also the kind of gossip columns that forces you to revel in information about people you don't know, which only makes you bitter about the things that you don't have. You see, David sees this the way God sees it. And the question is, is it really truly possible to put that kind of sin to death? And the answer is yes. And it comes in verses 6 through 12. I'm going to read these, and I want you guys to pay attention how often he talks about his inward being or his heart condition. Because ultimately, this sin issue for David and for us is not an external problem. It's an inside one. Let's see. <laughs> Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See guys, what we need, we need new hearts. We need new desires. David's sin didn't start with seeing Bathsheba. His sin was in the heart from the start. Verse five says, I was brought forth in inequity and in, and in sin, did my mother conceive me? He's not saying my mom was in sin when she had me. He's saying, I've been a sinner since birth. And he's done making excuses. He's done shifting the blame. He realizes that his sin, his heart is full of sin and he wants it out. So I, have, I know this lady who, uh, when I met her, she had a scar on her nose and I made the mistake of asking her how she got that scar. She said she woke up one day and her nose was feeling funny and it started to smell kind of weird. So after a couple hours, she went to the doctor and they told her that a cockroach crawled into her nose and died. I know this is gross, but this is important because this is the way David sees his sin. Imagine you're at the doctor and they tell you you have a decaying cockroach in your nose. What do you say? Unless you're Nick, you're like, let's leave it in there. <laughs> you say, get it out. Get it out of me. This is what David sees. When he sees sin in the light of God sees it, he's like, get this out of me. He's saying, wash me, cleanse me, remove this from me. He wants nothing to do with it anymore. We sin because we love the things that we should not. We sin because we believe the lies from the devil. Our hearts are fixated on snares and traps, and our hearts need replacing, redirecting. Our, our desires, our wants need upheavals, and only God has the power to do that, but we play an active role in our repentance. Again, Timothy Keller, the gospel is the implicit power to change, and it is unleashed through repentance. So what is God 
restore and replace our cockroaches with. Take a look again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David wants to be enraptured with all God is and all that God has done. When I, when I first got saved, about a year later, I was just like all in on Jesus. Like I had left my job. I'd moved to Mission Viejo. I was volunteering at my church like four or five days a week. I had a big old Not of This World sticker. I was like rocking Plumline and something like Silas. Deep tracks, bro. Deep tracks. I was all in. And it would be a lie to tell you that the last 14 or 15 years or so, it has been that same exact way. The truth is over time, like you I lose sight of how good he is. It's not that God becomes less good. It's that I get distracted. We get caught up in life's humdrum malaise, and we lose sight of the transcendent beauty that is our Lord and Savior. David wants the joys of his salvation restored. And so my question to you is, is that where you're at this morning? Do you want the joy of your salvation restored? Have you lost sight of how amazing God is and how much he loves you and what he has done for you? If you this morning feel like, man, it's been a while since I was caught up and enraptured in who God is, I would tell you just at some point this morning, pray and ask God to restore the joy of your salvation. He is a faithful God. Now, the end result of repentance is not just the joy of our salvation. See, the joy of our salvation, joy is always fully realized when we express it. Let's look at those last few verses. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifices or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you delight in the right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You see, God's confession starts with this vertical issue. God's God does not confess. Don't tell Chris I said that. <laughs> David's confession starts with this vertical realization. He realizes that there's something that's happened between him and God, and it's his sin. He sees it in God's sight, and he confesses. He wants restoration. He wants salvation, right? He is focused when he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He is focused on God. And once he understands that God has saved him, once he realizes the joy of his salvation, then he is ready to look horizontally. He's ready to express his joy horizontally with Uriah's family and with the rest of the kingdom. I made a similar point when I taught on Psalm 150 a year ago. And I mean, I, I'm going to make it again because ultimately when we read through the Psalms, we see this over and over again. The Psalms end like this with this language of like restoration and doing good to Zion. So here's what's happening. When we truly have joy, when the joy of our salvation, salvation is truly realized, how do we, what do we do with joy? We express it. 
That is the natural way of doing things. Like I said before, when you binge watch a great new Netflix show, when you visit an amazing restaurant, listen to a great new record, watch an awesome movie, what do you do? The first time you had Sarah Metcalf's sourdough bread, what did you do? We got excited about it. You tell people about it. That is the natural thing that we do when we experience something joyful is that we express it. And that is what David is doing here. He has is, he is fully realized the joy of his salvation and he wants all to know. He's saying, God, give me, uh, give me a song for my lips. And when he says, do good to Zion, anytime you see that word Zion in the Old Testament, the people in the Old Testament were longing for the kingdom of God to come, which is his church. And we live in the now and the not yet in the sense that Zion is realized after the cross, but not fully realized until Jesus' second coming. In other words, when David says, do good to Zion, it's similar to him saying, do good to the people of King's Cross. Do good to the people of all the churches around the world. For us to be able to say, God, do good design, it's like us saying, God, build up your kingdom. Bring more to a saving faith. Help more realize the joy of your salvation. See, the process is that David comes face to face with his sin, with the reality of sin. He confesses it to God. The joy of his salvation is restored. And then he sings the praises of God to the people around him. Sometimes I can't help to think that if I, when I have the joy of my salvation, if I'm not uh, moving missionally into my community through, through words and through actions, I can't help but wonder if that's the reason why I lose sight of my salvation. I want to close with this. I had a thought on Uriah because we still have a problem. We still have a dead Uriah in this story, right? Like this honorable man, the best friend of David, is murdered. He was cheated on, lied to, manipulated, and murdered. And most Bible commentators rightly talk about David as a foreshadowing of Christ. And he is. David was a good king that failed. Christ is the great king that will never fail. But in that same way, Uriah reminds me of someone too. You see, he's dead and David's joy is restored. And as I said earlier, you and I are the Davids of our story. And Jesus is our Uriah. Except that Jesus saw it coming. We did not manipulate him into dying. He chose to die for us. He didn't come here to be accepted. He came to be rejected so that we would be accepted. So that we would be forgiven and set free. So that we would be able to taste the sweetness of repentance so we would have the joy of God's salvation. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.